I had actually stopped recording, but yeah, no, we can do this too. Um, so, I mean, why, this is this is just going to be an amateur production. It always has been, and it always will be. We're sorry, Steve. <laughs> it's all good. Steve's Steve's used to my amateur theatrics and used to my amateur antics. He's he's known me for quite a while. Um, but speaking of which, hello there. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> And welcome back to another episode of the Dark Waters Podcast, a literary podcast focused on dark fiction and those who love to read and write it. I'm Nate, here as always with... Kirsten, hey. And today we have a guest writer on, so you're not just get to listen to us talk. We have Stephen Luber as our guest writer, so say hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. <laughs> hi, my name is Nathan and I'm an alcoholic. Um, so Steve is employed as a technical analyst at a fortune 500 company in san jose area they would probably prefer he didn't mention them and in the spirit of that i'd like to give a disclaimer that all opinions expressed herein are the opinions of the individuals and not the institutions or organizations with which they are affiliated that being said let's get on with the show so steve would you like to give us anything else about you is there anything the listeners should know have you been published before if so where tell us a little bit about yourself well, I was going to do the uh, likes long walks on the beach joke, but you already made that one in a previous episode. Um, <laughs> I see why you guys are friends now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the dad humor is still pretty mild. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've published about uh, a dozen, 15 places so far, most of which are under pseudonyms. Um, under my name, you can find things at uh, themeofabsence.com as well as miserytourism.com. Probably the two places most recent that I would point people, but um yeah, I'll try to be uh, less boring than I actually am for this. Uh, you're, you're absolutely delightful, my man. You are absolutely delightful. So for a bit of context um, and how Steve got involved in this amateur theatrics production, um, Steve and I have known each other since college, maybe since 2014, 2015 or so. Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, we met over a shared interest in, shall we say, supernatural happenings at our alma mater. Um, there were some rumors of some very suspicious goings on. Uh, that we kind of bonded over. And since then, we've built a friendship on memes. The best friendships are built on memes. They don't actually involve dialogue. It's just memes back and forth. Yeah, it's <laughs> memes, Russian literature, and then friendly teasing about our respective churches because, you know, I'm Catholic, he's Orthodox. It's, it's Russian Orthodox, right? Yeah, um, I mean, Orthodoxy is Orthodoxy across the traditions. But um, yeah, if I have to pick a team, that's the one. Yeah, you'll, you'll pick the Moscow Patriarch as well. So, all right, I get you. I see, I see how it stands. As he takes a drink of whiskey. <laughs> hey, if you're not fasting, Steve, I would expect you'd be drinking anyway, so. <laughs> no, our fast starts this Saturday, so I got a little bit of time. Okay, all right. Well, then, good luck. Have blessed fast. And is this one of the minor Lents or a great Lent? No, this is big. This is I'm leading up to Nativity. Okay, well, have a blessed Nativity then. I feel like such a bad whatever like, i don't i don't affiliate anymore but i just feel like i did not attend sunday school enough to understand what you guys are talking about no so that's true for nate and i in general people just sort of look at us bewildered <laughs> well the thing of it is also is that when we were studying because we studied russian language as well as russian literature together mm -hmm. so our pre our teacher was a russian orthodox priest so every single massive holiday we'd always get like he, he'd come in one day wearing just plain old white as opposed to his normal black cassock. And we'd just be like, oh, so it's a big day, is it, Father? <laughs> uh, so that was pretty typical for us. And that's kind of how our friendship started. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Um, so, Steve, we have this lovely list of questions that we always ask our guests. So what do you normally classify under the header of dark fiction and why do you love it? Slash, what are you specifically looking for when you're looking for dark fiction? Um, so as far as the definition, I guess like anything you would traditionally consider um, horror, suspense, or maybe a thriller type writing. Um, and I guess I had to think about this for a little bit, but the appeal for me is more, it, it's writing that like in no way tries to sugarcoat the human condition, in no way tries to uh, make it seem more glamorous or more uh, pain-free than it actually is. Um, it's, I think, like a much more honest way of writing, even if you're uh, dealing with, you know, maybe some extremes of, you know, psychological conditions or violence, or you're dealing with things that are outright supernatural. Um, there's an underlying honesty to it that I don't think you find in other genres. And I guess that's been sort of the enduring appeal for me. All right. That's exactly why we had this podcast to start with. <laughs> so... 
in terms of what made you decide to write and publish, why did you start? Um, honestly, it was an inexpensive hobby. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, in, in all seriousness, like I remember like even like second, third grade, I would try to make my own like comic strips, mostly about like Star Wars at that time, but always just sort of found something, um, I don't know, that, that Genesis Quad, you know, appeal to like actually writing on a page. Um, that's really something that's been with me through my entire life. Um, in terms of, you know, the more modern stuff, there really wasn't a single aha type moment, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just something that's been an ever growing presence in the, the sh uh, shadowy peripherals of my life. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that's like a common thing of, I don't quite know how this started. I just had to do it. Exactly. Seems that's, that, that's kind of been a common theme throughout at least everyone that we've met that that's been a writer as well so just writers in general it's just like a well of course i did right exactly. yeah what, what else are we gonna do it's kind of my thought for like a lot of like life in general it's like nobody really knows what they're doing you know we're all trying to go through like not looking stupid try to pretend like we have a plan but it's more circumstance than anything else across the board it's a lot of fake it till you make it but then never making it just consistently faking it <laughs> speak for yourself i'm gonna fake it until the end I'm gonna <laughs> it's it's take, kind of a, take strength of whiskey <laughs> yeah 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 i'm um, sorry i have all of my knowledge and where i don't have knowledge whiskey is there so you know <laughs> it's great if you can't dazzle them with brilliance baffle them with bullshit i like that um <laughs> to that uh so when you're editing other people's work uh, do you have a set style of trying to improve other people's work? What's your approach to working on a story? Um, not really a set style so much as it is um, trying to get behind the perspective of what, whoever the character or the narrator is and try to make sure like as much of that is, as much of like what they're feeling, what they're going through, what their perspective is um, as possible gets out on the page. Because I think, at least in my experience, like when I'm writing, I have a pretty clear idea of um, what's going on in my character's head you know what their motivations are and so on but it doesn't always translate onto the page that anybody else would understand it mm -hmm. um so i guess that's really the first and foremost thing that i'm trying to be cognizant of uh, but not really a particular style or anything like that okay and then so let's go with a hypothetical situation then you've been published you've won awards you've had a successful career in letters whatever that means who would you want your work to be compared to so this might be the uh, single strangest answer you ever get in the history of this podcast, but if you can imagine a combination of H.P. Lovecraft and C.S. Lewis. That's not weird. I love that. I love that a lot. <laughs> I, would, I would read that. Like if someone, if that was what it was like on, like the, you know, when you're walking to a bookstore and it's like our staff recommends and it was a combination of H.P. Lovecraft and C.S. Lewis, I would buy every copy and be like, you have one and you have one and you have one. <laughs> The Call of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Or something like that. Um, I mean, it gets your attention, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, that's amazing. You should totally, like, pitch that to an agent and be like, this is how you need to sell me. <laughs> and having, like, having read a lot of your work, I'd say that actually applies because there's a very, there's a very strong theme of philosophy and theology that runs through it. And then you definitely are creepy. Um, in, in the kindest way possible, you're, you're a very creepy writer. <laughs> yeah, I guess kind of like, like the underlying difference would be like the, the basic like Lovecraftian way of telling stories and like that narrator's point of view of looking at the world, I think is very effective. But the underlying difference being, um, for him, it's an unredeemable cosmos that ultimately, um, if it has meaning, it's not relevant toward us at all. You know, we're as insignificant as ants that might accidentally get stepped on. Um, whereas mine, it's gradually, you find out that there is, you know, an underlying meaning to the universe. There is underlying value in each individual life that you only really come to realize over the course of a lot of hardship and, um, you know, genuine supernatural affliction. Um, but it's a lot easier to try to <laughs> have that idea in your head rather than actually make it uh, come out over time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is a really cool answer though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, is there a story you've always wanted, well, like kind of going off that, like is there a story that you've always wanted to write or see in writing? Um, I mean, I guess like the macro project that I've been working on for a while, um, an excerpt we're going to get in a few minutes. Um, I have three novels outlined 
that are basically tackling on this broader theme. Um, I have about 400 pages total so far, about half of which are garbage. Um, but basically it's, you know, taking real folklore from, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, upstate New York, um, and having characters in the modern day or recent history sort of stumble into them and find out it's all true. Um, and it's kind of, I mean, Nate has a little bit of experience there with this too. There, there's a lot of like really rich, like oral and urban legend tradition, like in our part of the world that I don't think is either being passed on in a very faithful way or, um, just sort of is acknowledged at all beyond the local area. And I think sort of trying to capture it in this medium is, um, something that's, you know, really worth doing. And if we can become uh, rich and successful over the course of it, uh, all the better. Love that. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, this was one I wasn't really sure how to answer because I guess that um, kind of ref reflects on the kind of reading I typically do. Oh, no, it's a hard question. Uh, um, Peter Ellis had a, a, like a composition of different Celtic myths that he produced, which I think is just called Celtic Myth and Legend, um, where it's hard to describe like his way of storytelling is both very faithful to like the actual urban legends of like the different places he goes but even though you feel like a really genuine like sense of loss for having not these things not being like an organic part of the culture anymore it still like reflects well on like the contemporary societies of like Cornwall, Wales, Ireland and so on. Um, that's a terribly inarticulate answer but um, yeah I mean like I think a lot of us uh, or at least me and Nathan had a uh, like I my answer was from like 10 books ago I don't I think Nathan is a little bit better about reading like balancing it out with better stuff but I don't know like I it's a it's a weird answer and I think what is happy is different for everybody so like that sounds really interesting just like kind of fits in with the type of writing you do too that if it's more myth-based I think, I think the the positivity of that is that it's talking about how certain traditions also get melded in with the modern society and that that to me is actually like a really interesting point of view that I really enjoy and I need to actually read that book now so thank you for bringing it up <laughs> yeah I mean I think you guys would both enjoy it like a lot of it was literally him as like a younger man like just doing like car tours of like the countryside and just talking to people mm -hmm. um so it's you know it is like really edited so it'd be readable for the modern audience, but it is, you know, sort of as organic as possible, like a continuation of like what you would actually have previous generations, like sitting around the fire um, telling each other. I mean, that's kind of half of what we do here anyway, isn't it? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. All that. Yeah. So speaking of stories that we're going to tell around the fireplace, um, can you give us a bit of context for what you have for us today? Cause this isn't purely a short story, is it? It's, it's part of something longer, isn't it? Yeah, so this is, um, it's probably going to wind up being chapter two of the first book, um, where you're still inter introducing like one major character per chapter. Mm -hmm. um, as I, you know, tried to start describing before, um, you know, it's based on real folklore from sort of the Great Lakes region, but told like in the modern day. Mm -hmm. So the character that you're going to get introduced to is someone who had her husband disappear in the context of like a broader series of missing persons cases in a thinly veiled <laughs> town in Northeast Ohio, that would be an obvious reference to people that are from the area. Yeah. And it's just kind of, basically what I'm trying to do is you have about half a dozen main characters that each start off with like their own storylines, but they, and they gradually brought closer and closer together by the end of the first book. And it's like, over, how many books do you imagine in this series? Um, not going to be more ambitious than three. <laughs> That's kind of where the outline exists now. Um, but I mean, a lot of the short stories that I've written are also sort of peripherally taking place across like the main, um, I guess, macro plot. They, they all sort of take place like in periphery to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know, it's hard to de decide exactly like what the uh, bounds of this is going to be, mm -hmm. if it goes anywhere at all. I mean, yeah. that's fair. That's a part of the, it's a part of the process. <laughs> part of the creative process. <laughs> well, that being said, um, it's your show, Steve. So whenever you're ready, take it away. Yeah, I guess I'll just take it from the top then. Sounds like a plan. Thank you. So it starts off with two uh, newspaper clippings. Uh, the first is from April 1991, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Bodies found in an empty lot. Ten bodies were recovered by the Cleveland Police Department in a field south of the city last night. The medical examiner's office declined to comment on the precise cause of death, citing an ongoing investigation. Witnesses, however, claimed that the bodies were found lying in a circle, with their heads toward the center and their feet sticking outward. 
No signs of struggle were evident on any of the corpses, and no identities have been made public. We will continue to report this story as it develops. The second clip is a, um, actually a book excerpt from um, Magic, Mystery, and Murder in the Rocky River Valley, Miskatonic University Press, Arkham, Massachusetts, print 2027. Many of those interviewed recalled a strange sense of lethargy that befell the region in the late 1980s and early 1990s. One man said it was like, quote, the end of a long work day in which the whole population was too tired to continue yet couldn't punt their card yet, unquote. While such a subjective claim is hard to judge, few doubt that Northeast Ohio, now known in some circles by its acronym, NO, had plenty of legitimate cause for exhaustion. Financial hardship had become the normal state of affairs with trickle-down economics doing little to alleviate the pain. After years of struggle, it is perhaps logical that a certain number of people will experience various conditions linked with or adjacent to insanity. Mental stresses are uniquely challenging and cannot simply be confronted like physical obstacles. Though not as well documented as chronophobia, better known as cabin fever, the, author, the authors of this volume would like to submit that this, the, sorry, would like to submit the thesis that a similar stress became epidemic in Northeast Ohio during the time in question and may be responsible, at least in part, for the strange events under discussion. We then go into the main body of the chapter, um, which is just titled present day. Angelica Portier began her day with a deep sigh, though to anyone watching it would have seemed like nothing more than an exhale. She was no longer as exhausted, distressed, and grieving as she had been in the days after her husband disappeared, but she didn't hesitate to use disappearance when she wanted to avoid undue attention. She still owed the, owned the house that she and her Michael once lived in, though she stayed there less and less often anymore, preferring instead to spend her nights in the bed of various amours on the far sides of town. She had developed this habit once the first anniversary of his disappearance had come and gone, when she was sure in her heart he was never coming back. Today was different, however. Today she woke up in a three-star motel just outside the falls. She was supposed to meet the police investigators later this afternoon, even though they had already come through their house several times now, looking for anything related to Michael's disappearance. Intellectually, she could appreciate how, how they were being thorough and the reassurance that they were trying to offer the families that disappeared, um, and considering them the actions of diligent investigators. In practice, however, she thought that they were beating a dead horse and that their continued bothering of grieved loved ones was bordering on real assholery. She would have later told her sister that she knew something was wrong, somehow. She would have, but she had not been in touch with Devin for almost five years now. She would have known something was wrong because Michael never went to bed in his work clothes. Their nightly routine was almost always the same when he emerged from his study after spending exactly two hours in there. They would change into their his and her sweatpants, return to the living room, and each have a glass of red wine before watching a single episode of Seinfeld. This might seem like a weird habit, but it served the purpose of going to bed in a lighter mood, reminding them not to take the minor episodes of their own lives too seriously. The night before his disappearance, however, he chose to remain in his collar, blue shirt, and khakis. Odd, but then again, he'd been very tired recently. Michael had always been a bit eccentric, a bit zealous in his hobbies and interests, but this was something she had always loved about him. He was someone that pursued his curiosities with absolute honesty, and for someone who had often grown up in an era when things were often derided, he made the, this made him authentic in a way that was downright refreshing. He should have been happy when the old books arrived. He would come home from work every day around 5.45, grab a single beer from the refrigerator, and never more than one, mind you, and meet her in the living room. Sometimes they would make love, sometimes they wouldn't. Their marriage had reached that stage where the honeymoon high was a distant memory, yet he still managed to keep a worthy flame kindled. On the occasions where amorous love were not in the air, they would spend some time in each other's company, often by just simply taking a much-needed nap for an hour or two. After their love, or nap, or both, they would usually prepare their meals together. Unable to have children, they had taken on various hobbies. A couple's cooking class was the last thing a younger Angelica could have pictured herself doing, but Michael drew things out of her that she never knew were there. Angelica Portier, known as Angelica Del Poirac then, had come from money. Not Rockefeller love money, as her father had used to say, but money nonetheless. In some ways, she and Michael Portier had been interesting contrasts. They were one of those couples you would have probably never put together in your head, but once, once you saw them, made a lot of sense. He was a native of the Falls, from a lower middle class background, and had worked his way up the corporate ladder in an accounting firm of reasonable repute by the sweat of his brow, or whatever that saying was. Michael had been one of the best things to ever happen to her. She always felt warm and cozy around him, feeling alive in a way that she never she knew she could before. He had met her back when she was the often unhappy and exceedingly self-conscious second daughter of Stan and, Je and Jenna, sorry, of Stan and Jenna Delapore. But that her had since moved on, making way for the new her, the 34-year-old Angelica Portier who had once been so happy. The lack of children was not a choice on their part. Michael had made it known from the beginning that he was family-oriented, um, and Angelica was not opposed to this idea. She had been a hard worker and was reasonably successful in her early career as a market researcher, but had eventually come to find the nine to five cubicle surrounded by people you hate routine to be exceedingly dull. 
Plus, Michael's enthusiasm and quiet surety that he brought to everything that he did had her considering all kinds of things that were previously alien to her. Since being with Michael, she enjoyed her life in a way she never knew she could before, every little aspect of it. Yet, the years went by and no children showed up. They kept the room which would eventually belong to a Robbie or a Katie empty and painted in a neutral white, waiting for the future tenant which surely the stork must drop off before too long. Her parents had gotten rather used to this new, positive Angelica and were looking forward from graduating from this world into the wondrous realm of grandparenthood. A few subtle probes were a staple of every conversation Angelica had with them, especially with her mother, but after a few years went by without news, they stopped teasing, and that was the last she heard on the topic. Of course, her parents had been initially concerned about her plans to marry Michael Portier. It wasn't that they disliked him personally so much, but they didn't see him leading a life of endless monetary success either. But he had eventually grown on them, winning them over in the same way that he seemed able to convince everyone he met. Michael always seemed sure that everything would turn out all right. And that's why the old books disturbed her so much. He really should have been elated. His study was full of books, stacked floor to ceiling and mold to wall, but these new arrivals were different. They were not like the countless history books that he had accumulated over the years, or the boatload of books that, had already, um, that he already had before they met. Those had been innocent, usually with the sterility of a modern publisher. The new arrivals were old, some dating to the colonial era and seemed to be made of a strange material. Angelica's initial guess had been leather, but it must have been ancient and dried up because it didn't feel like any leather she had ever felt before. Regardless, such an eminent history buff as her husband should have been thrilled to have them, but the look she saw in his eyes when he opened the books, sent by a long-lost friend, he would tell her, had never left her memory. She saw a sense of tragedy, of fear, of feeling that, well, I guess the good times are over, in his eyes. He quickly buried these emotions and put on a brave face around her, but a sense of deep and, sad and true sadness always lurked behind the surface. He would spend less and less time with her after dinner in the year before he disappeared, and instead retire early to his study where he would increasingly obsess over the tomes. Angelica sometimes thought she heard strange sounds coming from the room at the end of the hallway, or from or smell strange aromas working their way down the stairs, but these impressions never lasted more than a moment or two. She knew all too well that things were not progressing well for him in the office and wanted to leave a little space for him to work out things for himself. A successful relationship always allows both parties to have a little breathing room. If he needed her, she would be there. If not, she would trust his judgment. He was always sure that things would turn out all right. Then, on the Friday morning after he slept in his dress clothes, he announced that he was staying home and asked if she could pick up some aspirin for him. When she came back from CVS, not 15 minutes later, he was gone, and the books were gone with him. The police seemed sure that his disappearance was linked to the other missing persons cases around town. The door to his study had been broken down from the outside, and his office had been ravaged. Several volumes were missing. But the fact that he went to bed in his dress clothes just gnawed away at her. Deep down, she was afraid that he had just walked out on her, left her, her, the heiress of part of the Delpar, the Delpar fortune. And then the disgust and embarrassment at such thoughts would overtake Angelica, and she would take a drink from one of the bourbon bottles she stashed away from Michael. Her parents came calling the day after his, his case was reported and insisted that she come home with him. She resisted, perhaps thinking that if she just stayed, if she just did something different, that he would come back and everything would go back to normal. She, of course, had heard about the other disappearances, but absolutely refused to believe that they were linked to Michael. None of those people came back, but he would. For three days and two nights, she remained in that house, drunk most of the time. She would wander about for the most part, always stopping right before their bedroom and the broken door to his study. She never went in. As the third night began to herald itself with the setting sun, however, she could no longer bear it. She phoned home, and her father picked her up about an hour later. She hadn't spent a night in the house since, feeling as though it had been violated forever. But now she was back, almost. Getting up from the three out of five stars bed, she stretched out while laying, while laying off a few quiet obscenities. She walked the walk of the half-conscious toward the Mr. Coffee and began pouring a mediocre caffeinated elixir for herself. The, the old Angelica might have found caffeine distasteful, but the new one needed it just to function anymore. Anything to keep her away from those fucking energy cans was welcome at this point. She had developed the energy drink habit in the few months after she moved back with her parents. She initially told itself it was that she could focus better. If I just think harder, something, some clue or hint will come into my mind and I'll figure out what happened. But in reality, she was afraid of her dreams. They had started visiting her in the first days after Michael's disappearance. It was always the same sequence, gunshots echoing in the distance and she saw men running up the hill. It had to have been in the colonial era because the men she saw reminded her of the extras from The Patriot or Last of the Mohicans. She seemed to be observing them from a distance of about 200 feet, looking out through a window or maybe an open door. Periodically, one or two of the men would drop to a knee and take a shot from his musket up the hill, but she couldn't tell toward what. Shouts were sent back and forth in an evident attempt at coordination, but the scene largely seemed to have been given over to chaos. And then the chanting would start. 
It began the same way every time. When men could, would just begin to crest the hill, a woman's screech would soon overtake everything. It was a truly awful sound, as though nails were being dragged across a blackboard, helium was being let out of a balloon, and glass was being shattered all at once. The men were stunned to a halt, some dropping to their, mu their muskets to cover their ears, and others actually letting out, or sorry, some dropping their muskets to cover their ears, and others actually letting, getting physically knocked over. It was the worst sound she'd ever heard, and she was absolutely desperate to avoid returning to it. Hence, her own unique version of a drinking problem. Waiting for her good enough coffee to brew, she unconsciously felt for her phone and pulled, out, pulled it out of her pocket. She had developed the habit of dressing in her street clothes and completely oblivious to the connection this made to her past a few years ago, only to see that it was already 11.45 a.m. noon. Why did she keep doing this to herself? And scene. Awesome. A few, few, few stutters in the mix there, but not as bad as it used to be. Sounded good. No, it sounds good. Thanks for, um, thanks for reading. We appreciate it. So there were a couple of things. We did have some notes on it. Um, and some of the notes I've actually noticed as, as we went through, as you were reading, uh, some of the notes that I had were actually resolved because it, mm. made, it made a little bit more sense um, as you were reading it out. Uh, so one of the things that we remarked on, and this is actually going to be fun because you actually can see a little bit of competition between me and Kirsten, you're a very subtle writer. Which I appreciate, but <laughs> also I found it funny Nathan, that you were like, oh, like a lot of the things were resolved. And I was like, no, I got more issues. Like I got more things I need to explain now. So. Oh, this, oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. Perfect. Done. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry that you get to be the torture victim this time. Uh, so, so since you're the one that has more issues, why don't you get started off? Yeah. Okay. So my big thing is uh, the relationship between Angelica and her husband varies in level at least for me listening to it and reading it I kind of picked it up and then listening to it again I was like no this is in a thing the degree of their intimacy changes throughout this chapter so at one point it's like okay they have like an amicable marriage and then it's like oh but he was the best thing that ever happened to her and then it's like uh, they had like an am like a little bit of distance and an amicable marriage and I feel like it either needs to be a little bit more consistent or it needs to be very obvious that her passion is more than his or the order needs to be moved around a little bit. I think it has to, more to do with the order of things. So for example, you have her, uh, her saying, he was the best thing that ever happened to me, but then her reaction to it, and I think I made this as a comment of him leaving her, is not like, I thought he loved me. It's how dare he leave me when I am from this family, which is a, for me was a weird reaction or uh, things about like them having sex. It doesn't feel like, and this is like a personal thing. I hate the phrase making love, like on a personal level. <laughs> so do I, but, but this it, was my design. Yeah. Right. So it just, it doesn't feel like they have the emotional intimacy that relates to making love. It feels closer to, and if you don't want to say fucking, it feels more like having sex um, or like it feels more physical than an emotional connection. Um, or if it, that's not the case, if she is genuinely very much in love with him, I need that to be a little bit more apparent because right now it feels like she's lukewarm. Yeah. So I think um, basically like, well, what I was trying to capture here was like how, like she was kind of like battling with like an earlier version of herself versus who she wants to be now and was actually going back and forth um, in her own head. So like in, ter in terms of like, you know, phrasing choices and things like that, um, it, I guess I'm trying to like reflect like that sort of like inner tension, like she's falling back into like old ways of thinking, even subconsciously, but still trying to be more like the newer version, if that makes sense. So like she has like, you know, like old, old money, old family, like type things that she keeps slipping back into despite trying to like consciously not be that person anymore okay. if that makes any sense at all it does make sense i still think that playing with the order of how you introduce their relationship would make more sense so i think if you had um let me see so if you started off with okay, their their pairing made no sense but my like this is the money that like she came for money whatever but Michael was the best thing that ever happened to her. And then kind of talking about their rhythm of things, 
and then kind of like proceeding that and then like the fallback of but she was from this family right like i think i think it just made like right now it just feels a little bit disjointed to me mm -hmm. um like that's a that could be just like a personal issue but for me it just feels a little bit disjointed in terms of how she actually feels about him and i get that that's partially intentional but i think for it to read the way that it sounds like you want it to be read it just needs a little bit of like tetrising yeah. yeah and i think i think going into that i agree with you on the order of it and i also think on the order of how you're talking about how you're talking about the way that she is debating back between to her old habits or her old family like piece by piece by piece because feels like the foil method in math like Oh, like, I just want a straightforward equation, and you're giving me, like, that. <laughs> you have to, like, break out all the different parentheses, and it's, like, yeah. it, it's, it's almost like you're, which is a weird metaphor, but it's one of those things where you're, you are trying to break this down. Also, so like, yeah. Also, I don't get the quite the connection between, because you go from uh, this, that, like, they liked each other, but then he was in a suit, but then this, that. Um, and then you say, I, I'm confused on how the paragraph about her parents being initially concerned about her plans to marry Michael, how that leads into, like, Michael was always seemed sure everything would turn out right, how that leads into why the old books disturbed her. Like, there's, because she's saying he should have been elated, he should have done this. Like, that feels like a disjointed segue as well. And I'm sure that there's more reasoning behind there. So maybe like if you could explain that, that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I guess like it's, again, like it's mentioned, like he always sort of seems like, you know, quiet, confident, reassured about everything he was trying to do. For instance, like he was able to win like over her parents despite like initial hesitancy. And that's just sort of another instance of like why seeing him like so disturbed at getting, you know, some books in the mail was like such a bigger deal, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, this is very much like an, uh, a first or second pass at this chapter, so I'm not pretending like it's a masterfully crafted, you know, work or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I think actually, I think actually like that first, like that's that last sentence of that paragraph, Michael always seemed sure that everything would turn out all right. That's why the old books disturbed her so much. Like the pairing of those two actually works pretty well as a flip because as you were reading it, um, as you're reading it, like I definitely sense the mood switch. And I think that's what you wanted, but I think the paragraph up above that, where it's talking about um, like her parents and how he was able to convince them, I think that's the part where like that last sentence almost seems like a little bit disjointed from it because of what you're trying to do with like the mood switch. It's like it, like if that if that last sentence were on like another paragraph, I think that would actually work. But I think just like that little linking logic. Oh, geez, I said linking logic. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's a term from work. Uh, <laughs> but like that, that link between uh, those two, that's where it gets a little bit weak. And then once you have yeah. like, Michael always seems sure that everything would turn out all right. That's why the old books have served her so much. That switch works. But a little bit before that, that's where it seems a little bit weak. I wonder if you could move those two sentences to like put them in the same paragraph and maybe have them end. So Michael was always sure everything would turn out all right. That's why the old books disturbed her so much. But put that at the end of, he would spend less and less time with her after dinner during the year before he disappeared and instead retire early to his study where he would increasingly obsess over the tomes. Michael was always sure everything would turn out all right. That's why the old books disturbed her so much. Or like somewhere in that paragraph, mm -hmm. put it there instead. So that it's more of a, I don't know, like I think it just like f for clarity's sake. To be like she's she's concerned because he's concerned it's the linking of his idea that thing everything would turn out all right is also linked very much to his work and then because the books are impacting his work that's where like you, you've drawn that connection between this thing where he's very very focused on it and this thing comes in to disturb everything like this this shipment of books comes in to disturb everything if yeah. that makes any sense at all yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's another one of those things where it's like stuff makes sense in your head, but you know, does it actually translate to people that have never looked at this before? That's why we're here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because yeah, like so the premise of it, I really, I like that it's so creepy. I also find it really funny that Nathan and I had a complete different, like, just no, but about the uh, hinting of the leather of the books. Is was he? Were we right? Is it supposed to be? 
human skin. Yeah, <laughs> or at least something close approximate to that. Um, <laughs> I actually thought like I was like the subtle way I wrote it that like that might be a little bit much. Like even that might be a little bit too like I don't know. Oh no, I I liked it. I think it like because if you don't get it right away that it's he, like that it is human skin or that it is mm -hmm. something like human skin, it's that like there's something wrong. There's something yeah. wrong with these books. Yeah. Well, I mean, like people like us, like read this kind of stuff all the time. It's like, haha, you know, it's going to be like, Hi, yeah. <laughs> like that. But, you know, for somebody that has like no context for this whatsoever, like that character, I don't know. I guess like that was kind of like the, I don't know if I get like an in-joke between me and the readers that like we know what's going on, but like the character on screen doesn't like an old movie kind of a thing. But I think, I think that's a valid thing of actually like having those in-jokes. And I, I guess my, my comment was more to the reader who doesn't read this stuff all the time where it's more of like, you got to hit him over the head with it. But I, I agree. I, I hate to say, I agree with Kirsten. It's something that kind of sticks with you where it's just like, it's kind of like leather, but it's just not. And it seems wrong. And so I think like, so it's appealing to like the reader's senses, right? So you're giving them touch of like, there's something wrong about how these books feel. So it's not just the emotion of like, these are old books that's got that her husband's having a reaction to it's also like oh no there's like something wrong with them mm -hmm. so i liked yeah. it yeah. uh on that note there was one i i was maybe this is going to be like something earl like explained later on but it's fine um she saw a sense of tragedy of fear of feeling that well i guess the good times are over in his eyes like when he was looking at the books Okay, if these are, so my first reaction was like, so these books are bound in human skin. And then it's like, oh, well, the good times are over. I'm like, so he's sad he's not a serial killer anymore? Like, I'm not saying that that's what you meant no, no, no. my brain to do. But I think that there needs to be a different, there needs to be like either cut that or change it to something because if that is the in-joke and people get that that's the in-joke or like get that reference. I, I just like, I... I don't know, like just, oh man, my murdering times are over. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, I, I agree is that like, cause I think the way that you're looking at it, Kirsten, is where it's, it's like now she's aware that he has like this really weird, like part of his life. And for me, it's more of just that, like these books carry such weight with them that yeah. this is unavoidable. Like, I, I, ass yeah. I assumed that that was what your intention was, but I couldn't, like, that was my knee-jerk reaction was, <laughs> so he was a former serial, like, what, what, so I, I would just suggest, and this could just be a me thing, but I would suggest maybe change that to something like, she saw a sense of tragedy, of fear, of, I don't know, impending doom, of, so, like, just changing mm -hmm. the phrasing of that ever so slightly to be, like, like a dread is coming in rather than like a ah shuck she's gonna find my murder closet you know <laughs> <laughs> sorry was does that all make sense is that all like yeah yeah it does i mean the the intent was definitely closer to like more like nate's reading of it where it's like he obviously knows a lot more about like the contents of the books and like what they mean than she does who's coming at it with no context at all so like you know like nate was saying like sort of like the the blood the like the life just like you know drains out of his face so they, they, then like he like puts like a brave face on it's like as soon as he like turns around and faces her again and realizes like she's looking at him mm -hmm. um so i mean it's hinting that like he's more broadly aware of like what's been happening like in the area you know the different disappearances things like that and he might even know like his own yeah um t future events um, I but. feel like that might add a little bit more clarity if you explain it if you describe it just like that like the color drained from his face he but then he immediately turned to her and was like, oh, this was a present from a friend, right? Like that sort yeah. of like flip again, flipping it around just a little bit. Yeah. Cause it seems like, it seems like the core of it is that like, not the story, but the chapter is that you're describing like the moment that everything went from not blissful and perfectly happy, but it went from content to everything's gone wrong. And what you're trying to see it seems like what you're trying to do is constantly show that dichotomy between this is how things were developing and then this is how things have gone wrong like you're trying to show from the order to disorder yeah and i mean like this like chapter itself is a bit of an experiment in terms of like present tense 
going to the backstory, coming back to the present tense. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, the chapter immediately preceding this one, it's like you meet the character like this afternoon and like sort of follow his, you know, his, his day, like as events are more directly tied into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely follow where you're, where you're coming from. Yeah. I, I would also put some thought into just how amicable or how lovey-dovey or how perfect picture was this marriage right like is it that her whole world has collapsed underneath her because i she can't be alone like she's physically incapable like one like emotionally and physically incapable and not self-sufficient like she went to stay with her parents whatever else like is she just that he was there and like provided her that base level of stability or was she genuinely truly in love with him and it's not just the heartbreak of him leaving it's the heartbreak of him disappearing before he disappeared you know i get like like you guys described earlier like it definitely seemed like they were like in a contented relationship you know like the immediate like honeymoon period is over it's been long over but you know everything's you know content like there's not like any major problems or anything like that which is true to like a lot of actual relationships like that initial high doesn't last that long comparatively speaking um, and there's like a lot of like mundanity that's involved mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when tragedy comes, even at that point, like it's still nevertheless a tragedy and like, you have to like start to like redefine like who you are now, especially if like it's been, especially a marriage that's been around for a long time. Yeah. That absolutely makes sense. I think it's just being a little bit clearer that that's where they were. Mm -hmm. That that's the thing. Um, I think another point we had was you, Nate hasn't had another note of, does she stare into the room like at the space where the books were like are the books still in the study are they gone like he took he said he took them with him i believe mm-hmm. so like is there a spot where she like looks at it or like yes i mean like the, the phrasing that was there it's like you know those the books were gone with him like i guess i could especially like those specific ones that he had gotten only recently whereas like the rest of the collection is in there yeah i, I guess like i didn't really build that up that far because you know those like three ish days that she spends there by herself like she's in a drunken stupor for a lot of the time mm-hmm. so like maybe like the memory itself wouldn't be that clear um mm-hmm. but so the kind of the thing that i was thinking with the note was it's more of that the the absence of them it's it's like it's like these things carried such weight with them that now that they're gone it's palpable to feel the absence of them like either the room feels it, it feels lighter, or for some reason it even feels darker, just for the fact that these things are no longer there. Or it's and just like the pres, like you can't get away from the emptiness of where they were. Yeah, it's like a residual heat signature, almost where mm. it's just where like wherever these things go, they carry a weight with them, and they carry a blackness with them that it just speaks doom. And it even goes to it goes a little bit further and bring up the point that we mentioned with how he initially reacted with the books where they have such weight and they have such tragedy with them that it's impossible for him not to just that have that initial visceral reaction of everything is going to go dark and everything is going to go down the hole. That's kind of the thing that I was looking at with, with like, does she stare at the space where the books were? That could even be a part of a drunken stupor is her just like hanging out in the doorway, just looking at this blinking thing as the room turned sideways or something like that, you know, like it's, Mm. It can be like a part of that that kind of pushes her away. Is that's that's also kind of what I was thinking, and I didn't want to say it, but I mean, when I'm drunk, um, <laughs> that sometimes happens as well. Where let me just dwell on the worst things. K okay, bye. I mean, yeah. that's my that's my brain under normal circumstances. So. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think what Nathan was saying about the the presence of the books being gone, especially like if it is that she's just wandering around in a drunken stupor, I think that that would have. Like, depending on if, like, you think that fits her character, obviously, I think that that could have a good impact on it. Yeah, no, I think that definitely, I think that definitely, like, comes to explain a lot about her. Because the other thing about it is that, this may be me reading a little bit too much into it, and if you mention this, forgive me again. It doesn't seem like she's going to stay, she's not going to stay this way the entire time. And what you're describing right now is her initial reaction to this loss. And, like giving like that that firm grounding of like this is her initial reaction that's what's going to make any action that happens next even more impactful from at least my perspective yeah like she de- she definitely goes on to be like one of the biggest like three or four characters like in the story but you're just sort of like getting your 
I guess like I'm trying to like introduce each character like as like they get introduced to this whole series of strange events that's happening. And so like that, that's, you know, what, what her condition was like at the time she got introduced to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like quasi alcoholic, completely distraught. That's not um, like the resting state by any means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's another point where you're saying quasi alcoholic. Um, a, I like the way that you say her unique version of a drinking problem. But it seems, and I think you could kind of push it a little bit farther just to not hit you in the face with it, but that she is hiding her, more of her hiding her drinking problem from her husband because he only has one a night and she hides the bottles from him. I think that you could push that just a sentence or two more of clarification. I like the phrase, her unique version of a drinking problem. I think, Nathan, you disagreed with that. Um, but you wanted to change it to caffeine addiction? Because what it is is that it's talking about the fact that she, after the initial drunken stupor where she is staring at the, staring at the study, mm-hmm. it's talking about how she's living off of energy drinks to keep from her dreams coming back. Yeah. Um, I, think the, I think if you clarify more, like if you just push the quasi-alcoholism a little bit, if you, whatever way you choose to keep that phrasing, as have it as either an accompaniment to the quasi-alcoholism or as a replacement for the Mm quasi-alcoholism yeah because i think what that also goes to is it shows like a little bit of an addictive personality Mm -hmm. so and i think also the way you you stumbled on something big actually yeah yeah i was gonna say is that like this becomes an obsession for her am i right almost yeah the um and because of that, she's actually one of the ones that puts like a lot of things together later on that like other characters miss. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's not really the direct basis, but uh, Mina Harper from Dracula. Like it's, oh, yes. She, yes. She, she's, the, she's the one that correlates a lot of the contents. Yes. That, that's like right in past everybody else's face. But um, uh, yeah, yes. this is more like a 21st century uh, version of that, I guess. Yes. Cheers, oh, yeah. cheers, to, cheers to women missing a lot of things that are uh, getting a lot of things that men miss. <laughs> Um, including a vampire named Stoker. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I try to blog it out, <laughs> someone makes a Dracula reference, and I'm like, oh, okay. I just love Nate's laugh, like in that situation in particular. Like it's so different from his normal laugh. <laughs> yes, it's 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 the. It's the absolute joy of pulling one over on a very dear friend of mine. If if we so ever make, go for it. No, I was gonna say if we ever make T-shirts, that 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 reference that reference has to go on them. Just so just so one day you'll run into someone in a bar and just be like, "Oh, you listen to the podcast? Yeah. How do you feel about Stoker? I hate you so much. <laughs> That's it. That's just how do you feel about Stoker? I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate everything um, about this. <laughs> Sorry, moving back to your story. Uh, so talk to me about this dream. I'm assuming that this goes into your idea of the, like, the book being about a myth that's come to life. Um, but there was one part in particular. It said she seemed to be observing at a distance of about 100 feet, looking out through a window or maybe an open door. Periodically, one or two of the men would drop to a knee and take a shot from his musket up the hill. She couldn't tell what. Uh, I'm not sure like what what or was it she couldn't tell oh she couldn't tell towards what Mm -hmm. so but okay so a shot from a musket up the hill i feel like there's just that phrasing is just a little clunky so just to clarify that you're not sure like they would drop to a knee and take a shot at something she couldn't see um Mm -hmm. i just like that whole paragraph i like i like what you're doing but i think just some of it just feels a little bit yeah clunky sorry i'm just repeating myself so what is the myth that you're looking at so this is a this is the witch's hill lonestead falls um which may or may not be based on an actual witch trial that happened at the time when northeast ohio was still part of connecticut um there's like contradictory um, reports about what it was um but sort of like my version of it is like a recurring theme. So basically, and there's this whole separate uh, short story I could forward you guys for more context about it. Um, and, but it gradually gets developed later on in the book. Um, she is essentially tried in, abs- in absentia, if that's how that's pronounced, um, related to... In, se- in absentia. 
Yeah, related to um, other disappearances that were happening, like in the in that same geographic area in like the late 1700s. So like, you know, there's some parallels there. And basically they get about a hundred men together to essentially raid like her little series of buildings to find out what's going on there. Okay. Um, but in the context of that, they meet all kinds of resistance that doesn't get actually drawn out um, for quite some time, like what it is they actually encountered there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I could go into more, but basically, like she's yeah, she and some of several other characters like wind up seeing like in dream format like little excerpts of like this battle because it's sort of like an underlying thing that's gonna take it's gonna be a recurring theme again and again um, subsequently. Okay, yeah. is that um, so? Are they soldiers, or are they townspeople that have come to raid this place? Um, I mean, they're townspeople. They're locals, but you know. I think it, it, I wind up phrasing it as like a militia in like that sort of like late colonial sense where like it okay. was sort of like it was sort of like tacitly understood that like all the freemen of an area would be like like an unofficial reserve army like in the event of a conflict mm-hmm. um but yeah not like a super regimented everybody's wearing red coats kind of a thing no it's not even that it's just uh so when I see the patriot or last the Mohawkins, I'm thinking of like an a, a more put together army maybe i'm mis- misremembering so but like that was whatever my interpretation was like that can be if it's militia that makes sense um yeah i think like i was yeah. trying to just get like a sense of like the time period with those references like you know it's roughly like that colonial era it's like not something more recent i guess that was kind of like yeah the thing I was trying to... no i think that that's fine i think it's just maybe it's the way that it's phrased because uh, she's she's 34 yeah mm. she's a fairly well-to-do person it just feels like a weird change in language of she seemed to be observing at a distance of about 100 feet i just feel like you can make that a more concise sentence so like she saw from about 100 feet away yeah like you know just i think that that would just kind of help make that a little bit more concise because it's already a thing of it's a dream sequence. It's a little confusing. You don't know what's happening. You're going to get more information as the story goes on. So trying to keep it as concise and clear as possible while the situation itself is confusing is going to help your reader. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. My long-winded explanation of my comments. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, that actually gets right to the point. That's something that I had actually missed. So thank you for bringing it up. Um, yeah, I think overall, I. I like a lot of what you're doing with the story. I think it just kind of goes into kind of figuring out the intention and I think the reordering of things that we've already talked about would be my, um, oh, also, sorry, just one other logic note. From, in the first news clipping you have from the Cleveland, Cleveland plane dealer. Mm. Yeah, plane dealer. Plane dealer, yeah. Yeah, why is it only the medical examiner office commenting and not the police as well? Um, no real thought into that. I mean, just, it seems like the medical office would be like the one that would be actually making a statement related regarding the autopsies. Um, but yeah, there's not, there's not like other thought involved. Sure. I would say just as a, someone who's watched way too many serial killer documentaries, the police would have some statement about it too. So whether, um, it's just, uh, the, poli- the police department said witnesses claim this or the police say no signs of struggle were evident and then the medical examiner's office declined to give a comment. I think you have to include the police in there at some point as well. That's that's my only like. So, I mean, overall, I like it. And I think you mentioned a short story where this is kind of brought up. Do you want to you mention where that, where the, is that currently published somewhere or is that like something that you're kind of keeping in your back pocket? Yeah, the one that's like the actual like uh, clash. Let me bring it up actually as I talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so like we can also put that in the show notes of like where this is published and, and the link to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can we can act as a funnel or act as a like kind of a highway exit um, to some of your other stuff as well. Um, yeah, so, so like air traffic controller. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me later. I have a great YouTube video of like some of, like the best air traffic controller like stunts. But oh, <laughs> um, so the short story that actually like focuses just on this clash is called um, An Occurrence on the Witch's Hill. And that's published at uh, miserytourism.com. Uh-huh. Nice. Under my name. Yeah. yeah. Send us a link. We'll put it in the show notes. Uh, 
Definitely. I also I also want to read it. So yeah, send it to us. Yeah, getting a bit of getting a bit of vintage yeah. Steve Luber. So yeah, well I, th- I think yeah, like I really like what you're doing with the story. I think it's very clear that you're setting it up to be a part of an overarching narrative and part of an overarching mythology. I want to see what you do with those books and like why they made him run away because Nathan and I have two very different interpretations of what they are. So like, <laughs> yeah, I'm really kind of curious as to where you go with this as well. And I think I may have seen like a little bit more of this, but I'm, I'm really kind of, I'm really kind of waiting to see what happens next. So you've got me hooked um, in terms of where this goes next. So please send us, send us the rest of the chapters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I might just wait a little while to build some suspense, but yeah, you can't see something. Don't don't do that. Don't don't be that person. We're in quarantine. We have very little to live for, Steve. Particularly because of the fact that you know I may be stuck in quarantine a little bit longer. Mm. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm I'm fine. Um, for for a little bit of context for everyone that's listening, I was exposed to COVID and I I got tested. I'm waiting on the test results. I think I'm negative. I may touch wood. Um, be completely fine, but. I may end up also being in quarantine a little bit longer. So thoughts and prayers, as some say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or I just go and punch the person who exposed you. I can't do that because they may be a much, much younger person. I can't really say <laughs> one way or the other. I didn't say you had to go punch them. I said I would go punch them. Okay. If you want to do that, that's entirely your prerogative. Yeah, but you're going to have to come down here and get exposed yourself. So. Yeah, no. So we can't just show up at your apartment unexpected tomorrow? I mean, if you want to do that, uh, you know, <laughs> you know for, if you want to show up for Friendsgiving, I'm sure my roommates would love to have the two of you. Where the hell these people come from? Oh, they're with Nate. Nate's not here. <laughs> <laughs> you've been you've been punked. <laughs> we like bust down the door, but all of your roommates have like you have like a gun cabinet. We would die. Like we have, we'd bust... we have a we have a couple of them. Um, uh huh. We'd bust down the door, and they'd be like. No imperialism today, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that'd be great for the, um, for the, that, oh, that, oh, it would be great. It would just be like, you know, not today, colonizer. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel about like families gathering. If anyone tried to come visit me this year, I'd be like, no. For, for context, everyone, we, we're, we're recording around Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. We are not legitimately, say, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. Like they're, we're not legitimately practicing revisiting this holiday of a bunch of white people decide to go places they're not wanted and spread disease like let's not do that (laughs) that's way too poignant actually (laughs) (laughs) oh guys i think i think quarantine's getting to me it's fine (laughs) i mean i think it's getting to everybody it's getting to everybody on the on the second go around and you know we're all going to be in isolation for a while that's This, this is why this is great. It gives us an excuse to get together with, with new people and new friends. So Yeah, and talk about murder books. I mean, there's, there's, a group, there's a group called the White Buffalo that I saw in concert once, and they actually used the phrase, who's ready for another feel-good murder song? I, I like was, the White <laughs> Buffalo. Yeah, they're great. But seeing them, seeing them in concert, I just they used the phrase, who wants another feel-good murder song? I was... Yeah! <laughs> It was also right before I saw Flogging Molly, so it was a great combination. Nice. Yeah. Hang on, I want to double check this because you said murder song. I just want to. It's a. It's. It was just. I can't remember what song they played after that. Phrase. No, no. I think they. I mean, oh that... no, I'm wrong. I was thinking of a song that was used in the Punisher, the TV show. Oh. And I was just about. I was just laughing. Like, who wants a good murder song? Well, that's why you were on that show. But that's. <laughs> I was you know, wrong. And in my head, it's still a funny joke. It's okay. it, it works. I mean, it, wor- it definitely worked in context. Um, so. A good match with Foggy Mollies, too. It's, it's almost poetic. No, I mean, <laughs> they, were, they were a great combination. Like, that was, a, that was a great night. They were at the um, – they were in Silver Spring, and they were um, – the White Buffalo headline for Flogging Molly. And that was also when Flogging Molly was on tour um, promoting their new album or what used to be their new album. Um, and it was just, oh my gosh, it was a great concert. It was fantastic. So, 
you know, when quarantine's over, everyone go see Vlogging Molly. Um, uh, in, I have, in 2020, um, 2023 or whenever that happens to be. Don't, don't say that out loud. Oh, man. I have tickets for a show in April that was supposed to be in October and obviously just like keeps getting moved back. And I'm like, by April, by April, could I maybe go? Yeah. I'm not, it's going to get canceled again. And I'm just like. Okay. I, I had tickets for. I had tickets for a group uh, that I've been waiting to see for three years and uh, they were going to play, they were going to play in national Harbor. Uh, so, um, but uh, they were going to play at that, at that venue in September. I bought the tickets in April canceled. And you at least got a refund. Yeah, I did get a refund only yeah. because I bought the insurance. Um, oh yeah. No, a bunch of concerts have been like doing refunds because they had to cancel so like it shouldn't yeah i had tickets to verite fratelli's dandy warhols and calio oh man fratelli's and Cal like were those all separate concerts or those were all separate concerts oh, fratelli's was supposed to be rescheduled for january dandy warhols has been canceled verite has been canceled and calio was scheduled to april i'm so jealous of the calio tickets it's in houston so i'm like maybe because texas doesn't give a fuck <laughs> I thought Maryland didn't give a fuck, but then Sabaton came to play, and um, that, that's yeah. a Hogan, that's a Hoganism, though. More yeah. Well, it's, it's oh, also I genuinely support. I recently moved out of Maryland, like about a year ago. Um, mm. But yeah, where? Yeah, no, it was. I mean, the thing of it was is that it's also right next to the MGM Grand, so mm. they they really don't care as long as the money's rolling in. I bet. But I mean, I, I almost got a chance to see Sabaton play with Judas Priest. Like that would have been like the best metal concert. Oh. They, they just need to go to Florida now. That's the only thing. Well, I mean, Florida, it's like you, they can just do an amphibious landing and that's the concert. I mean, that totally works with Sabaton. I mean. <laughs> well, didn't, isn't Florida the one that just decided like, eh, fuck it. No restrictions. We're, we're done with this. I mean, They I did that a while ago. It's yeah. been a while, yeah. I mean, Florida is just the wild west. It's just the wild southwest is what it is. I just find it so funny that people are like, New York exploded. And I'm like, Texas has over a million cases. Florida has at least that much. Like, pretty sure Florida's number one. Uh, New York's still sitting in like 600,000. And I'm not saying that that's a low number. Like, that's three European countries worth of cases. But... Texas and Florida, like, clearly don't have their shit together. Oh, Cal California's a, California's a mess, too. Like, yeah. Los Angeles County just banned outdoor dining. Uh, yeah, I saw that. It's, it's yeah, oh, it's not fun. Does, I, mean, not okay. I mean, the thing of it is also is that, like, bear in mind, who was the person that was most on camera talking about COVID? It was Governor Cuomo. That's mm. why everyone associates New York with exploding is because the governor was constantly on and Texas and Florida kept their mouths shut. Well, also because New York had, uh, we had the freezer trucks of bodies. Oh yeah, the freeze, the freezer. Like lords. we were the first ones hit when, not, like, no one knew like how to handle it because we'd been given no information. So we had the freezer trucks of bodies just in the streets. Yeah. So, I think that's the thing is that we haven't had other states with that issue. Mm -hmm. Uh. At least not in any way that's been publicized. At least not in any way that's been publicized. That is yeah. that is correct. Also, New York is now one of five states that meets the CDC, uh, CDC or WHO's recommendation of 5% or under testing threshold going into the holidays. So they're like, oh. please keep it low. And it's like New York and like some other very, very small. Probably, probably North Dakota. No, they're at like 40%. Wyoming and Idaho are like 40% testing because they're only testing people when they're about to die. Oh. Yeah. No. Well, and that's all that way you can sort of like cook the numbers in like any way you want because it's like it, the testing is only as reliable as like the like population sample. Mm -hmm. so like you can be like as selective or as broad as you want to, um, which yeah. is, I don't have a solution to that, but. Yeah. Uh, if, we had, if we had solutions to that, we could all, you know, go to, we could all get rich. I mean, I just. I'd, I'd go into DC and say like, I can solve everything. And you know, I feel like, you, no, no, no. I feel like you'd go into DC and be like, I can solve everything. And someone would literally just hit you over the head and be like, fuck you back of the line. <laughs> 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 we all think we can solve it. Oh. <laughs> Calm your tits. Oh. <laughs> Calm the calamity that is your memories. <laughs> but. <gasps> what? <laughs> 
the audience can't see the faces, but like your facial expression is you just shouted, what was perfect? <laughs> it's like the look of like pure like. <laughs> You're all going to get a notice about three days after Thanksgiving. This is when Kirsten, this is when Kirsten killed Nate. Um, <laughs> killed Nate. Kirsten just like fell down and died and it's Nate's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, one of us is about to die for what I just said. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, the, I would like to think that not everyone in DC knows how to solve everything because I mean, there's probably some, there's probably some jackwad 20 something who does and I'm a 20 something, but I'm not, you know, that cocky. Uh, and also I have no authority to tell anyone to do anything. So. Yeah. Just remember that this conversation started off of uh, who wants to hear another murder song. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you, this is why everyone listens. You know, this is why people like yeah. this all, all five of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> On that lovely, optimistic note, um, Ray will link to Steve's websites and the short story that we mentioned in the show notes. Uh, please submit your stories. We'd love to read them and go through this process with you and you can maybe keep us mildly more on topic. Uh, <laughs> like, subscribe, follow Steve because he's great. And remember to always look beneath the surface. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>